Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from RootMetrics second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement. This week, NXT UK's Flash Morgan Webster is joining us. We look at episode two of The Last Ride. The Intercontinental Championship is being decided in a tournament, and Twitter is full of drama. This is Not Sam Wrestling. This is Not Sam Wrestling. Introducing your host from New York, here is Sam Roberts. Welcome to the week. Happy Monday. Welcome to Not Sam Wrestling. And what a time it is. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Not Sam Wrestling. Thank you all for being here once again. It's wonderful to have you. Uh, There is a lot to talk about. A lot to talk about. Once again, just when you think that wrestling Twitter drama has hit its apex, it hits us back even harder than ever. We'll get into it. We got Flash Morgan Webster on the show today. It's going to be a very fun show. But uh, I'll tell you, I come to you now mere moments after watching episode two of The Last Ride. Episode two of The Undertaker. What many would describe as quite possibly the greatest documentary series ever. And I would actually agree with that. I think it's true in that case. The Last Ride, episode two. um, I think it premiered on the WWE Network last night, Sunday night, if you're listening to this, when it publicizes to the world uh, right away. But uh, it was available all day, as these uh, episodes all are, on Sunday. Um, So... I thought episode one of The Last Ride was great. Episode two was even better. The story that this is going through, you're sort of, I think by episode two of The Last Ride, you really start to figure out what this docuseries is all about. And it's about The Undertaker and his quest to have that perfect poetic moment to go out on. And I think I said this last week, but really the only person that I can think of in wrestling. Well, I guess there's two people. I feel like Stone Cold Steve Austin went out on a perfect poetic moment and never came back. And we can ignore the tag match that's going to be featured next week on The Last Ride on episode three. Uh, But Shawn Michaels, for all intents and purposes, his career ended at WrestleMania 26, right? Yeah, 26. So... In a match with The Undertaker. That's when I consider Shawn Michaels' in-ring career to be over. And I feel like that was that poetic moment. But The Undertaker, uh, Shawn Michaels had The Undertaker to give him that moment. You watch The Undertaker and he's on this quest to get that moment. And there is some really good foreshadowing. I mean, really good foreshadowing. There's this one moment. They're backstage at the 2018 Royal Rumble. And The Undertaker is only there to watch Michelle McCool compete in the Rumble match. 
And he's like, oh, man, that's one guy I'd like to get an opportunity with. That's one guy that missed me, AJ Styles. He just gets it. And it's just this moment, but you see this foreshadowing of what is to come. In my mind, this docuseries is not chronicling his time up until the last ride match. There's no doubt in my mind that this docuseries is going to lead to his real last match, which will be against AJ Styles in a traditional one-on-one match. I would think that they're going to try to wait, even if they have to wait a year, that they're going to try to do it in front of an audience so they don't have to figure out how to do it in a non-traditional way. But, you know, I feel like when you look at, at, at the career of The Undertaker and how much he cares about these moments and how much he needs to leave on a high, coming off of WrestleMania 34, he didn't wrestle at WrestleMania 35, which I hope they get into uh, on the last ride next week. But he didn't have a match at WrestleMania 35. He came out the night after and attacked Elias, but that was it. He ends up doing the Saudi show where it was him and Kane versus Triple H and Sean. Terrible match. He ends up doing the match uh, 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 with Goldberg. Terrible match. You know, there, there, there's all this. And then WrestleMania 36 comes, and he has this great match. He has the Boneyard match. You know, I guess he did have that one match after Goldberg at the pay-per-view after. But still, it's not a, it's not that it, it, it was a good match and it was like it reminded you, okay, the Undertaker still can do it. But it wasn't the moment that people were waiting for, you know? It wasn't it wasn't it wasn't the WrestleMania moment. Um and I think that he might have intended for that to happen when AJ versus Undertaker was first being talked about, because AJ versus The Undertaker was being talked about well before we all got locked down. So I believe that there will be another AJ Styles versus Undertaker match, and I believe that no matter how long they have to wait, if we ever go back to watching wrestling in arenas full of people, I think that we will see The Undertaker versus AJ in that environment. Um, You know, I, 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 I think that, a really interesting moment in this week's episode was looking at The Undertaker. If you look, last week's episode, it ended with The Undertaker coming off of his match against Roman Reigns. And he wasn't disappointed. He didn't come across as being disappointed. He was on that high that a lot of performers get, a lot of superstars get coming off of a big match. And it's interesting, and and, and it's not really talked about, and you don't see a lot of evidence of it, Because it's just in those moments after a big match, a big game for other athletes, a big performance for maybe theater actors that's live and in front of people, there is this high that you have to come down off of. And we witnessed that on this week's show. We witnessed what the high was like when The Undertaker had just put his coat and gloves and hat down in the middle of the ring and and he had finished. The match with Roman was over. Whether it went the way he wanted or not, it was over. It was finished. He had put a stamp on it. But it wasn't until that high wore off that reality started seeping in. And you start to wonder, because that feeling doesn't really seep in until that high has worn off, if The Undertaker versus Roman Reigns at WrestleMania 34 was 
Undertaker's last match, we would not have remembered the fact that that match wasn't as good as it should have been. We would have remembered the moment in the ring, the Undertaker taking his hat and his coat and his gloves off, the Undertaker saying goodbye, and then we would look back on the career as a full body of work. It makes me think that there will always be a reason that a performer like The Undertaker can think of that will trick himself into thinking he's got to get back in the ring. And I don't think it's a flaw. I think that, that he's addicted to performing at the highest level possible. And that's a really, really difficult thing to just simply walk away from. Steve Austin did it. Shawn Michaels did it. But look, I mean, Shawn Michaels was not only convinced to get back in a ring, but he's back working full-time with WWE again. So it's a difficult thing to walk away from, for sure. Uh, and we see that so much, and I won't spoil everything, so much about the relationship that Vince McMahon and Undertaker had um, and the fact that it goes back and forth. When you're seeing these guys both talk about each other with tears welling up in their eyes, I don't think any of us realized how close those two were and how uh, familial and, you know, father-son their relationship feels like. Uh, but for me, the part about episode two that left me with goosebumps was the buildup to the WrestleMania 34 match. 34 match, yeah, between The Undertaker and John Cena. Now, I've always thought that that match was something I've had a lot of questions about because it was not built in a traditional way. Of course, that was the match where they didn't officially announce the match was happening, ever. They said that John wants this match to happen. John's going to go to WrestleMania. He's going to sit in the audience. Sam Roberts is going to yell, action is on the way, 200 times on the pre-show, standing right in front of him. And then he's going to hope that The Undertaker shows up. So there was no, this is it. This is when it's going to happen, The Undertaker and John Cena. So already, you're like, this iconic match is not getting advertised. I mean, as fans, it was interesting watching how much they did to try to cover up the fact that The Undertaker was in the building. Because as fans, we all knew it was going to happen. We all knew there was no way. But there was also, I think for me, and probably a lot of other people, we felt like maybe the reason that they weren't full-on advertising this match was because maybe it isn't going to happen. Because the health of The Undertaker is always drawn into question. And coming off of WrestleMania 33 and how he looked with Roman Reigns, maybe they're going to have to make this call at the last minute. Maybe he thinks he's going to be able to get back into shape, but he actually won't be able to. And that's why they're not fully saying, okay, we're going to do this. Because The Undertaker talked about, in episode one, his confidence issues that struck him after WrestleMania 30. And when you watch him, when you look at his face as he's going to the ring for WrestleMania 34, even though he knows the match is only going to be five minutes, he knows he can pull it off. He knows everybody wants to see him. You know, he, he kn It's as sure a bet at that point. He's put the work in. It's a sure a bet at that point. And you're in there with John Cena, who's the professional of all professionals. It's as sure a bet as you could ever have at a WrestleMania. And you can still see it all over his face. You can still see that he's in performer mode. You can still, you can, you can see the butterflies. You can see, you know, I, nervousness is probably not the right word, but you can see the, the, the intensity, the single-mindedness, the fact that this is the only thing in the world in that moment that he cares about. And there's a lot of performers 
at The Undertaker's age that have the body of work that The Undertaker does, that if you're going out there at WrestleMania for a five-minute match, you don't have to have that level of intensity. You can just go out there, run your greatest hits, come back and say, okay, that was fun. I'll collect my check. But that's not The Undertaker. And that was very clear. Just looking at his face. You can't lie about that. You can't make up a documentary around that. You can't make things seem like something they aren't when you can look at his face as he's being golf carted to the ring. And you can see it. You can see the emotion all over. And I'm getting chills right now just thinking about it because they didn't really expressly say why that match was only five minutes. Undertaker even said, I was ready to go 40, and they only gave me five. He said he wanted to have the match of the night. There wasn't anything from John Cena said he wanted to tell a story of bringing the Undertaker back. You know, there wasn't any explanation as to why that match was only five minutes long. And I think I realized why it was five minutes long as I was watching. And I think that it started when you watch the Undertaker and Vince McMahon have this meeting. And uh, in the commentary of it, the Undertaker says, you know, I told Vince... I don't know if I can do this. And Vince said, yeah, that's fine. I don't know if you can either. And he said that Vince is usually this guy who's like, no, you can do this forever if you put your mind to it. Vince is the rah, rah, rah guy. So when Vince was not going rah, 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 it made The Undertaker question. It made The Undertaker question, what angle is Vince taking here? What level of salesmanship is Vince McMahon working on to get me in the right mind state to do what I need to do at WrestleMania? And then you see this story, and you see John Cena describing the story of bringing The Undertaker back. And you, you, you hear how hard The Undertaker is on himself. And you can, you can feel and hear the confidence issues. You can, you can, first of all, you can feel it, even as I felt it as The Undertaker was riding uh, the, the thing up the ramp at, in New Orleans. When he, we had just seen him pick out which hat he's going to wear. We've seen him figuring out how he's going to warm up differently this time. Like he's just put so much effort into every little thing that I could feel that he's got to be walking that razor thin line as he's being risen up the ramp to walk down it into the ring in the Superdome. The Undertaker's got to be thinking, oh God, I hope I can still do this. We watched him get the ring and 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 practice and practice with Primo and run the ropes and take bumps and make the video for Vince McMahon and do the whole thing. And then I realized that WrestleMania 34 was not about The Undertaker getting the send-off that he wanted. Bruce Pritchard, when he was talking about the match, he was talking about The Undertaker going out on his own terms. He was talking about The Undertaker giving that level of performance because that's how he wants to go out. But I believe that between Vince McMahon and John Cena, the goal was never to give The Undertaker the moment that he needed. The goal was never to satiate the appetite of The Undertaker. The goal was to give The Undertaker just enough that he could prove to himself that he still had it and that there was still more in the tank. The Undertaker said it multiple times right after the match, when he's on that wrestler high, right after the match. 
He told the cameraman, you know, I still got a lot more in the tank. He told Big Show, I trained for 40. He told, I mean, he told, how did you, how did it feel out there, Undertaker? It felt short. That match was designed to increase the confidence in The Undertaker in real life, to remind The Undertaker who he is as a performer, and to get that fire burning in The Undertaker's belly again. And when that hit me, when it hit me that the, the whole situation was orchestrated so that that one man could continue to perform and continue to feel good about it, I went, oh, my God. And then I said, Sam, your conspiracy theory mind is getting away with you. Why would they go that far for just one guy? And then you watch the clip earlier of Vince McMahon who can't, when asked the question, what does The Undertaker mean to you and what does The Undertaker mean to WWE? He can't answer the question because he knows emotionally he'll completely break down. He, he, you look at a picture from 1990, and there's 12 guys in it next to Vince McMahon. And The Undertaker is the only one that today stands next to Vince McMahon. You look at the new generation, and there's a lineup of chairs, and it's Razor, Diesel, Brett, Undertaker. And one guy stood by Vince the whole time. Even... When you talk about Shawn Michaels, while he didn't go to WCW, he did walk away. The Undertaker was always there and gave everything. And Vince, because The Undertaker gave of himself, when Vince was at his weakest, I don't think there's anything that Vince wouldn't do for that guy as a performer and as a person. And then... I realized one step more that this whole documentary, we're looking at The Undertaker and how, isn't it amazing how truly human Mark Calloway is? That we've been looking at this character for so long as an entity. The real draw of this documentary is, isn't it amazing not only that The Undertaker still cares, but how much he cares, how much he feels how much of a human being he truly is. And then you realize that that's what these shows mean to these guys that perform on that level. That when you're at the top, it's not just about, hey, I want to be a big star. I want to make a whole bunch of money. It's about the performances. It's about having those spots. And after 30 years of being in the WWE, that The Undertaker can come with the greatest WrestleMania career of any superstar in history, that The Undertaker can come off of a match and go, I wish I had had more time, that it's just not enough. This is what I realized. What about what John Cena just did? I can't wait until there is a documentary series about what John Cena truly did. Because right now, we're still, I think we appreciate John Cena more than we used to. But we're still at this period where people want to talk about the fact that John uh, beat the Nexus. And, and all the storylines that John Cena went over on. All the times that John Cena uh, was successful as a character. But nobody talks about the sacrifices of John Cena. Nobody talk, Nobody ever. It's not a conversation that comes up. And that's because it's not a conversation that John Cena 
puts out there. John doesn't talk about it himself. But when you look at it, you go, oh, my God. So this first, a, a few months ago, I'm, I think I was talking about to Wade Keller, and I think it was around WrestleMania time. Um, it must have been WrestleMania last year, maybe, at this point. I don't, I don't remember when it was. But we were talking about John Cena, and it occurred to me that John Cena went out there at WrestleMania 27 as the top guy in WWE, current guy. He spent a year building up this story with The Rock. And he was willing, even though he was the top guy, to lose to The Rock. And you go, yeah, but he got his, he got his, 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 Rock got his comeuppance. John Cena got his receipt on that. And while that is true, you have to keep in mind that from WrestleMania 27 to WrestleMania 28, I think that's what it was, right? 28? Yeah. From WrestleMania 27 to WrestleMania 28, or maybe it was 28 to 20. First time. No, yeah, it was. Whatever. Between the first John Cena Rock WrestleMania and the second John Cena Rock WrestleMania, that year, John Cena, even though he was supposed to be the top guy in WWE, had sacrificed his WrestleMania win for a guy that wasn't going to be there. The Rock. And just kind of admitted, look, he's a bigger star than me. The Rock is a bigger deal than me. And while John Cena came back the next year and he finally got that victory over The Rock, that was the last time John Cena ever main evented a WrestleMania. And I feel like that was 29. So it must have been 28 and 29 that uh, The Rock and John Cena main evented together. 29 was the winning against The Rock. That was the last time John Cena ever main evented a WrestleMania. He went to 30 to have a match with Bray Wyatt. And after he went to 31 to have his match with Rusev. And you're going, but he won those matches against the young guys. Yeah, he did. But he was wrestling on the middle of the card. You don't think that John Cena feels that? You don't think that John Cena sits there watching the main event, whether it's Roman Reigns, whether it's Brock Lesnar, whether it's Seth Rollins. You don't think that he watches these guys and goes like, damn, that's my spot. Damn, I should be the top guy in the company and I'm not because I'm wrestling in the middle of the card. You don't think on an emotional level, on the level of a performer that John Cena feels that? But he just is a soldier. And then he goes to WrestleMania 34 and he has this match with The Undertaker and a less giving person would sit there and go, even if The Undertaker wins, I want this to be a crowning moment. I want this to be an iconic moment in the history of John Cena. I want this to be the match that everybody remembers. Even if The Undertaker wins, I want The Undertaker to do for me what The Undertaker and Shawn Michaels did for Shawn Michaels, what The Undertaker and Triple H did for Triple H, what The Undertaker and other people have done for other people. I want that for me now. I want the greatest match of my career against The Undertaker, and I want it at WrestleMania. And instead, we can talk all we want about The Undertaker because this is his movie. But John Cena went out there and spent five minutes getting squashed by The Undertaker and then went home. And that's it. John Cena, as his era's top guy. And by the way, 
Nobody has a 10-year run on top. Nobody, people don't put Mount John Cena on their Mount Rushmores. People don't talk about John Cena with Stone Cold Steve Austin and Hulk Hogan and all these guys, even though they should. They don't. And John Cena sucks it up and allows WrestleMania 34 to just be completely about somebody else. And it's not even like he can swallow his pride and say, well, yes, this year's WrestleMania is not about me. It's about this young guy, and it'll be about the future of the business. No. John Cena sacrificed himself for the history of the business. John Cena sacrificed himself because he knew the WWE as a company would be better with The Undertaker in it. And I believe wholeheartedly that the only reason John Cena got squashed at WrestleMania and the only reason that match was five minutes long is because John Cena sacrificed what could have been a selfishly amazing moment for himself and instead did the best thing for The Undertaker, which in turn was the best thing for the company in his mind, which was having The Undertaker back in the fold. And it's not like he even did it to set up a rivalry with The Undertaker that would continue. He just took the loss and kept going so that The Undertaker felt like he could get back in the ring and there was more that needed to be done. I mean, that level of sacrifice for a performer, the show of shows, WrestleMania, I'll just be there so The Undertaker can have this moment. You don't get those moments back. Ah, there's always next year. You don't get, like, yes, there's always next year. But you don't, that's not, you don't get WrestleMania's back. You don't want one WrestleMania moment. WrestleMania comes along and you're like, I'm in a position to make it special for myself. And when you just give one of your WrestleManias away, when you're John Cena, and you can theoretically, what we've been led to believe, do whatever you want, and that's what you choose to do? That's an unbelievable sacrifice to make. You know, I, 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 I can't wait. I can't wait until the conversation about who John Cena is and what he truly did for WWE becomes a more prevalent conversation. Because I just think the world of that guy, especially after seeing that and putting those pieces together, I'm blown away. Absolutely blown away. Even more so the fact that he didn't go and do 100 interviews explaining why. I've never heard him vocalize, this is why I did that. He just did it and he kept it going. And this is my interpretation of everything. Maybe I'm totally wrong, but I don't think I am. I'm usually not. Episode two is amazing. Uh, really looking forward to episode three where they go over the uh, match with Triple H and Shawn Michaels returning. And they're very honest about the fact that it was a cluster. I don't know if they'll get into the Goldberg match next week or not. I mean, they have to at some point. If it's not next week, it'll be the week after. But such a good documentary series. So, so amazing. Um, so there was some drama on Twitter this week. Leo Rush and Mark Henry uh, uh, were going at each other pretty much all weekend. Um, you know, and I, 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 I think it's, it's, first of all, I love Twitter arguments. So whether it's wrestlers going at each other, wrestling journalists going at each other, I will sit there and read every back and forth tweet and see if there's anything that I've lost and, and 
look for little audio clips, whatever I can find. I will, I will absolutely sit there and, for my own entertainment, watch two guys go back and forth. Now, I, I know both Mark Henry and Leo Rush. I mean, I know Mark Henry better than I know Leo Rush for sure. I, I've been a fan of Leo for a while uh, since he was since his CZW days. And, you know, we've exchanged pleasantries and, and have a familiar relationship. And Mark and I, obviously, you know, Mark's done a bunch of live shows with me, interviews. Like, Mark, Mark and I have done more together than that. Um, neither one of the two have ever struck me as a bad person. I can specifically say Mark has absolutely never struck. Mark has actually been extremely good to me. So he's the complete opposite of that. Um, and it seems like this Twitter beef started with, and I say Twitter beef because that's where a lot of it's hashing out, but it is, you know, seems like feelings have gotten involved. Mark Henry, I guess when Leo was going through his first set of troubles with WWE, um, tried to offer him advice. I don't think Leo took the advice. I think that that rubbed Mark the wrong way. Uh, I think that Mark talked about that rubbing him the wrong way. I think that that bothered Leo that Mark talked about it. So now we're in this scenario, and I don't know exactly why it came up again this week. Because it seems like it was all stuff that that sort of was done. And maybe, you know, Mark said that he thinks it's because Leo has an album coming out and he was trying to use it for promotion. And maybe that's true. And if so, it worked. Everybody's talking about Leo Rush. But, uh, you know, I, I, it, it strikes me as a complete misunderstanding. It strikes me as Mark Henry trying to do right by a person um, I think, you know, Mark Henry, I think, likes to give out advice. Not to say, and I think that his advice is, like, super valuable. But I think he likes to take on the mentor-type role. And I think it sometimes might confuse him a little bit when somebody doesn't want to accept that advice. And I think Mark also knows that Leo's young and that it's easy to not take advice. I think at some point, Leo will probably go, yeah, I probably could have handle that a little better. I probably could have just taken at least some of Mark's advice or simply said, man, I really appreciate the fact that Mark took some time out of his day to give me some advice. Um, but when we're young, that's not really how a lot of us want to think. When we're young, it's like, yeah, okay, but you know, now it's my time, so I'm going to figure out my way. And that can rub people the wrong way who have kind of gone through that. You know, Mark Henry historically has all kinds of stories about how uh, how he was trouble when he was younger um, in the wrestling business and how he had to learn the hard way. And I think that Mark likes to kind of impart that wisdom so other people don't have to learn the hard way, but, you know, some people have to learn different ways. Now, I don't think Mark's going to sue anybody. You know, he mentioned something to TMZ. I think he was just trying to illustrate his point that, uh, Leo was not telling the truth about him. And that's how he illustrated it. I, I can't imagine, because Mark got criticized a little bit for that, but I wouldn't imagine that Mark's actually going to sue anybody. But look, if you like wrestling Twitter drama, that's what was uh, playing out over the weekend. Um, also, uh, uh, I wanted to give my predictions for the Intercontinental Title Tournament before we get into our interview this week and talk a little bit about a certain member of that tournament. Um, so... 
So a few things. This is a little bit layered, but um, the Intercontinental title was declared vacant on SmackDown uh, because Sami Zayn is not performing right now. Uh, and some people thought that that was uh, messed up, you know, because WWE has said if a performer doesn't want to perform for whatever reason, doesn't feel comfortable, health, blah, 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 they don't have to. There's no penalty for it. And some people are saying, well, if there's no penalty, why did you take his title away? And you're, I mean, for me, I feel like it's... Number one, it's a storyline title. It's, it's you know, you're not, it's a, it's a, it's a storyline. You're not actually awarding the championship to somebody. It, it, that's, it's a story. Number two, they've done that with everybody. They've done all titles that couldn't be defended regularly have been changed. You know, Pete Dunne couldn't get into the States, so they put Timothy Thatcher in the tag team with Matt Riddle and then had them lose the tag titles. Uh, Jordan Devlin couldn't get into the States. The Cruiserweight Championship was declared vacant, and a tournament was started. Sami Zayn's not going to be on, on SmackDown. Intercontinental title is declared vacant. I mean, it all seems like pretty stan standard fare to me, but I guess you always want something to be uh, upset about. So uh, it's interesting. AJ Styles is in the tournament. We didn't see him wrestle. We just saw his name, uh, which I love that he's in the tournament. And I guess that... It's going to be brought up that it's about the brand, you know, the the brand invitational. The rules of the brand invitational were explained on SmackDown that a superstar can go uh, switch brands up to four times per year, meaning if you're on SmackDown, you can visit Raw four, or you can be invited to Raw four times per year. If you're on Raw, you can be invited to SmackDown four times a year. We saw Charlotte on SmackDown this week. It was announced, I believe, that she'll have a match with Bailey next week. So that will be two of Charlotte's brand switches. Now, of course, Charlotte is the NXT champion. So I would imagine that if you win a title while you're over on the other brand, you're allowed to maintain your citizenship on that brand. Meaning Charlotte ended up in a situation where she won the NXT championship. So she goes to NXT all she wants. She's got an NXT championship. If she were to go to SmackDown, say and have a match for the title with Bailey and win the SmackDown Women's Championship as well, I don't think that the four-visit uh, rule would apply anymore. I think Charlotte would be able to keep going. Uh, so if AJ Styles, let's say, were to win the tournament, round one will be first trip for AJ. Round two will be second trip. And then the finals would be the third trip to SmackDown for AJ Styles. So if he were to lose in the finals... He would only have one trip to SmackDown left. But if he were to win, I would think he'd be able to stay on SmackDown. I think. So it's a little complicated, but I think uh, they're trying to do what they can, uh, not only to get more stars on each show for ratings, but as their roster is smaller because of the scenario that we're all in, in these, U I mean, globally, I was about to say in these United States, but globally uh, because of the pandemic and because of the quarantine orders, um, and stay-at-home orders that they want to utilize as much of their talent on both shows as possible. So I think that that's the thinking behind it. Uh, it was this week on SmackDown, uh, Daniel Bryan versus Drew Gulak with Daniel Bryan winning in an excellent match, by the way. I love that there's, uh, there's some wrestling being thrown into pro wrestling now. We saw Drew Gulak versus Daniel Bryan on Friday, and we saw Timothy Thatcher versus Matt Riddle on Wednesday. The Timothy Thatcher-Matt Riddle match was... Uh, the match that I preferred over the two, but that was also one of the best matches I've seen on TV 
in a long time. I loved that match so much. I hope they have another one at TakeOver in your house. I really do. I love the name, by the way. I love they're bringing back the brand. I hope that that match happens there. Um, you know, Daniel Bryan tweeted out something like they, because they're uh, partners, Drew Gulak and Daniel Bryan, that they decided uh, they agreed not to strike. No striking, but just holes and wrestling and stuff like that. And I thought I thought that was great. Uh, and then they did Elias versus Baron Corbin with Elias winning. Uh, the other two tournament matches, I guess both next week, are Jeff Hardy versus Sheamus and AJ Styles versus Shinsuke Nakamura. So in terms of where I'd go with this, um, I would have... I would actually... I would... There's two ways. So my first thought was to have... Either way, I think you have to do Sheamus defeating Jeff Hardy for two reasons. Number one, um, I think you have that happen in a tournament so that they can squash that beef in a scheduled, sanctioned, one-on-one -on -one grudge match that happens at a pay-per-view, and that's the one that Jeff Hardy wins. But I think Sheamus beats Jeff Hardy for sure, has to, um, next week, not only to lead to another Jeff Hardy-Sheamus match, but also because I think the match— that we want to, I, I want to see Sheamus versus Daniel Bryan. I think that, you know, you have, Sheamus and Daniel Bryan love wrestling each other. I know that Daniel Bryan loves wrestling Sheamus. They both are completely hard hitting. It'll be the opposite of the Drew Gulak-Daniel Bryan match. It'll be all strikes, just getting pale skin all redded up. It'll be awesome. So I want to see Daniel Bryan versus Sheamus for sure in the second round. And then Elias versus either AJ Styles or Shinsuke Nakamura. Um, my gut says AJ because I would love to see an intercontinental title match between Daniel Bryan and AJ Styles. I think either way, Sheamus goes out in the second round and Elias also goes out in the second round. Either way. Uh, but, um, I think that, uh, I think that, we have to choose right now. Is it Daniel Bryan versus Shinsuke Nakamura or Daniel Bryan versus AJ Styles for the Intercontinental title? Now, and you could, between the three of them, the idea is at some point Sami Zayn will be back. So if it's Daniel Bryan versus either one of those two, you could have Sami Zayn versus Daniel Bryan in a great rivalry for the Intercontinental Championship as that is a rivalry that had kind of already started. That's possible. You could have AJ Styles win, and that way AJ Styles now gets to stay on SmackDown. Possible. For me, I think, even though we've already seen it, I kind of like the idea of Shinsuke Nakamura beating AJ Styles, then also beating Daniel Bryan. Because if you now have victories over AJ Styles, Elias, and Daniel Bryan, it may be at least a piece in the, of the puzzle in rising the stock of Shinsuke Nakamura. And I really like the idea of Sami Zayn coming back and waiting for Shinsuke to just anoint him the champion and Shinsuke not doing it. I love the idea of Shinsuke going babyface again by Sami Zayn saying, okay, you know, I'm here to take my title back and Shinsuke going, well, you can't have it. And then we end up with a pay-per-view match eventually 
for the Intercontinental title between Shinsuke Nakamura and Sami Zayn. And while because of the road that we've been on with Sami Zayn, you may not take that all that seriously based on his SmackDown character, it'll bring us right back to TakeOver when Shinsuke Nakamura debuted. The Sami Zayn, Shinsuke Nakamura, it was Sami's last match in NXT, and it was Shinsuke's first match in NXT. And it was a barn burner. It was a classic. And that, I think, can come out again on a main roster pay-per-view. I mean, you could do it ladder match style, Sean Razor style with two belts hanging. You could do it many different ways. But I think, I think I'm most interested in seeing Shinsuke Nakamura go back to being a good guy and uh, feuding with Sami Zayn. Um, the shock, I think, of the weekend was let not less than 24 hours after we saw the Daniel Bryan-Drew Gulak tournament match, uh, we got word that Drew Gulak was no longer a part of WWE. Now, released is the word that's being thrown around, but a lot of websites are reporting that um, his contract expired and he opted not to re-sign uh, the deal that he was offered. Look, I don't get into other people's business as a wrestling podcast, not a how much money do you make podcast. I would have to imagine it had something to do with the money because I can't think that at this point WWE would have invested as much story time, TV time, uh, and camera time, although TV time and camera time are the same thing, into Drew Gulak uh, only to release him. So I have to imagine that it had something to do with the money that he was being offered. And... I would imagine that had he asked for more money, had his contract expired before quarantine, he probably would have gotten whatever he asked for because lots of people were getting huge bumps because they weren't they were trying to keep every piece of talent. Now that they're in this mode of of allowing talent to leave and, you know, getting rid of a lot, um that's that's what makes me think it might just be bad timing for Drew Gulak. But Drew Gulak, uh I got familiar with Drew Gulak through his work in, uh, well, I guess CZW, or, yeah, he did some stuff at CZW, Evolve, definitely, and uh, Pro Wrestling Guerrilla. I met Drew Gulak uh, after going to my first PWG show. I interviewed him for this podcast years ago. You can look it up. Uh, sitting in Los Angeles on a stoop of a house that had construction going on, hoping nobody would interrupt us. And just talked to him about wrestling for a while. And we kept in contact And after that. And I was so happy when he first got signed by WWE. Um, but I think more than anyone, Drew Gulak was able to make something out of literally any opportunity that was presented to him. When he was on 205 Live and nobody was watching 205 Live, he started doing his character work. That's when he started the No Fly Zone that's when he started doing the PowerPoints that ended up on SmackDown as well. That's when he started doing all of that, that when really there was not a lot of buzz on 205 Live, the character work that he started doing is what got people talking. And that is something that I think people didn't realize Drew Gulak had in him. That he was great in the ring, but also he could do amazing character work on the microphone. Um, when he came to SmackDown and he started doing commentary, I'm like, damn, he's great on commentary. When he started the rivalry with Daniel Bryan and he got a pay-per-view match somehow and everybody was like, wow, this is a pay-per-view match and it tore the house down. It was the best match on the pay-per-view. And you're like, okay, here we go. And now this story where he is Daniel Bryan's trainer, I mean, it's just been, it's all, it's been up, 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 up for Drew Gulak. Um, 
I think over on Patreon at Patreon slash Not Sam Wrestling, we have this uh, this thing called Not Sam Wrestling Backyard Wrestling, where I have started a fantasy promotion um, that is a backyard wrestling promotion in my backyard that uh, is primarily based on recently released WWE talent. I think maybe on Thursday for the Patreon exclusive Thursday Not Sam Thursday podcast. I might have to write our second set of TV tapings and we might have a new debut because I would sign him up in a heartbeat. I think AEW should try to grab him and just make him a killer. Don't bring him in and put him in the middle of the card. Don't bring him in. I think Drew Gulak needs to go somewhere. I think Ring of Honor would be awesome for him if they were running shows. But I think he needs to go somewhere and just become a killer and become a world champion because I think he's got that capability. Just a guy because... I was having a conversation about him uh, with somebody uh, and saying that Drew, because of his style, just worked in such a way where he added, he he was a credible opponent for anybody. He could be wrestling somebody two times the size of him. And because of his moveset, because he was using amateur wrestling and grappling, you believed what he was doing. So I think he should come into to, to some place. It's just a absolute murderous killer heel. Um, but, Maybe we'll get into more of that for the Patreon folks, for the Not not Sam Shills at Patreon slash Not Sam Wrestling when we do uh, TV taping set two of Not Sam Wrestling Backyard Wrestling. Uh, in the meantime, speaking of uh, extremely talented people, uh, Flash Morgan Webster, I think, has been a standout of the NXT UK brand. Um, I, I'm, I, I was a fan from the beginning and watching him evolve with out of character work and into just being one of the standouts in the ring has been really, really cool. Um, I've gotten to know him a little bit. We started talking on the internet a little bit and I said, you know what? Why don't you come be a guest on not Sam wrestling? I would love to have you on the podcast. He obliged. And that led us to where we're at today. Ladies and gentlemen, my guest on this week's not Sam wrestling, none other than flash Morgan Webster from NXT UK. The Not Sam Wrestling Interview. For the first time on the podcast on Not Sam Wrestling, from all the way across the pond, ladies and gentlemen, Flash Morgan Webster is here. Now, uh, hey everyone, how's it going? How are you, man? How what's the haps? What's going on over there? I mean, we we kind of have an idea of, or I kind of have an idea of of quarantine life here in the states in New York and everything. But what's going on? Uh, where you are? Oh, I'm. I'm luckily I'm not in a major city, so I'm in a small little town uh, called Stafford, which is between like pretty much an hour either way of Birmingham, Manchester. Uh, yeah, Birmingham, Manchester. So it's a lot quieter here, but I guess it's probably the same as everyone else. Uh, we're leaving the house to do shopping once a week. Um, go out for a little, like maybe like an hour walk once a day. Uh, gyms are closed, pubs are closed, restaurants are closed. So that's pretty much it, really. Just kind of getting those home workouts in in the house and uh, going out and doing shopping once a week and then making myself uh, a coffee and putting it in a takeaway cup and pretending that I just got it from Starbucks. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what, so how is it that you stay motivated to work out? That's what I wonder about, like, athletes, right, who who have to. Because I was in this phase from – it was it would have been over over a year. I've been in this really healthy spot where I've been working out at the gym three times a week with a trainer. And like, it was, you know, I could obviously see the differences and I was like, I, and I don't work out. Right. 
I've I've been kind of locked up. This is we're now starting the seventh week of of quarantine. I've done one home workout session, <laughs> one in seven weeks. <laughs> so how do you how do you how do you stay motivated and how do you do how do you figure out home workouts that get what you need out of them? I think that's quite that's a really interesting question. Really, I was listening to a, a Joe Rogan podcast. Uh, a couple of months ago with a guy, a second name escapes me, where his first name's Ashley, and he's a uh, he's a guy who walked the entire length of um, a river in China, and he's from Wales, same place I'm from, but I'd never really heard of him until I saw the podcast, and he was saying that some days he would wake up and he'd spend, um, he'd spend 12 hours hacking through this forest by the side of China, and he would only make it uh, maybe like eight miles in those 12 hours. And then he'd get so far into the forest and he'd find there's a big like rock in the way or he couldn't cut through it and he'd have to turn around and walk back. And Rogan goes to him, how do you stay motivated? And he goes, motivation. He goes, it, he goes, some days you've got it and some days you haven't. He goes, motivation's fleeting. It all comes down to discipline and routine. And I think that's it really. It's, yeah. it's some of us go, oh, I'm not motivated. And a lot of times I go to the gym and I'm not motivated to do what I've got to do. But I've got a routine and I've got the discipline to know that if I don't go today, then that's going to knock on tomorrow, which then in turn will knock on in a week or two. And if we're at a takeover or something and we've got to cut into the next the next phase of our match or the gear's got to go up a notch and I'm gassing, it's probably because I've missed out one or two of those workouts and that's a knock-on effect. So I think motivation, again, comes and goes, but it's all about having that discipline to know, okay, I've got to do this workout today. And social media another way, is another great one to kind of help you do that because Luckily, everyone, again, wants to show that they're working hard. So a lot of the NXT UK guys are posting stuff on Instagram, their workouts, their times. So that kind of gives you something to aim for. Like, okay, if Jordan Devlin's doing this or Primate, for example, got a hell of a gas tank on him from the hunt. So if he puts something up with a time, I think myself, if I can get within a minute of that time, then I must be doing pretty good. So again, social media really helps with that as well. I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, and also the fact that your job, you have to, you at some point you'll be back to wearing tight pants and no shirt on television. So people will know, like, I, I can just grow my beard out more and wear more hoodies. And, you know, yeah, I'm sure I'm still skinny. Don't worry about it. <laughs> you know, like, but you, the results would be there. And I saw not too long ago on your Instagram, you posted uh, kind of like a year of progress in terms of your fitness. And it, it was like a dramatic difference. Clearly, that, that had been something you had been focusing on for the year. I would have to believe that when you see yourself making that big of a difference— that has to kind of fuel that discipline and go, this is why I'm doing this. This system works. Yeah, definitely, 100%. And again, I was on the independent scene for quite a long time. Yeah. And and a lot of the independent wrestling fans are loyal independent wrestling fans. They they come for the wrestling. And sometimes, like, again, looking a certain way of being a wrestler helps. It really does. But again, you could not look a certain way and it doesn't hinder you sometimes. So maybe for a while I got myself into what I considered was good shape, but it was it was okay, it was moderate. And then you get yourself onto onto the likes of like 205 Live or you get yourself onto Raw or NXT. And that's when those tweets start coming in that kind of start comparing your body type or the way you are. Um, and you start thinking to yourself, well, I thought I was in pretty good shape. And again, I don't ever single fans out and say you shouldn't be talking like that. I kind of look at it and go, well, if I was in the best shape I possibly could be, and those fans were saying these things, I probably wouldn't care. But if they're saying it and there's something that kind of is, you know, triggering me a little bit, maybe there's some little bit of truth to it. So then you kind of go take a step back and go, okay, if they can see it, 
what can I do to change that? And again, I think that's helped as well is kind of having people who aren't your friends, yeah. aren't your family that are telling you, oh, you're looking great. You've got kind of the hardest critic in the world, people who are paying their money to come to shows or people who are using their time to kind of log on to the WWE Network or tune into USA TV or whatever. And they're going to be brutally honest. They think you look a certain way. So again, that's kind of helped motivate me as well to kind of change their perceptions. That really is interesting when you talk about like feedback that you get online. Cause like when it's just trolling or when it's just, some, you can, you can ignore stuff that you know, oh, that's not true. Oh, that person doesn't know what they're talking about. Like, oh no, that's not. And then you'll get one and you'll be like, oh no, they know what I secretly know. Or like that's, <laughs> like that's the one insecurity that you have that you know you have to change. And then when somebody points it out, you're like, oh no, the whole world can see it. Or if there's 10, if there's 10 tweets in a row, then they've definitely got, <laughs> they've got to be right. Okay, that's the thing. <laughs> so, so what was it like when the WWE first came into the UK, you know, to first do that championship tournament before NXT UK was an official brand when you had just heard, cause you were not in the original UK championship tournament. You came in the year after when it was kind of the launch of that brand. But in 2017, I mean, I think it got a lot of people talking because the UK independent scene, it just had blown up so much. And there was so much coming out of there to the point that you had already been, I mean, by then you had already been to PWG and come over here for a little bit of stuff, right? Or was that just around the same time? So by the time that Dari came rolling around, I'd done the, the Cruiserweight Classic and I'd done Shikara King of Trios. Right, okay. So I'd done that. Okay. And um, I, for the first tournament, if you go back and watch um, Mark Andrews versus Pete Dunne, which are two of my best friends within wrestling, there's a moment where the crowd kind of, the camera cuts to the crowd and you'll see me stood in the crowd with uh, one of my other good friends from wrestling, Jim Lee, mm -hmm. and we're watching the match. And in the build-up to that tournament, in the entire like, six months, uh, you know, three or four months lead-up, the tryouts that the boys had beforehand, I wasn't medically cleared. I had that Cruiserweight Classic qualifying match with Zack Sabre Jr. And unfortunately, uh, fractured my ankle in two places, uh, tore my labrum, tore my rotator cuff in my shoulder and needed shoulder surgery. Wow. So I was out on the sideline. And some people say to me, like, would you have been in that tournament? And I like, I like to think... I would have been because, again, I was already kind of considered for the Cruiserweight Classic qualifying matches, but you never know. Yeah. And really, it was probably a good thing that I didn't go because, as you said, from that then, they picked up the likes of Mark Andrews. Um, they had Pete Dunne, they had Tyler Bates, and they had a real good crop of people. Mm -hmm. And even though I thought to myself, I'm great at this point, it wasn't until that when I came back and I had that another year on the independence, I really felt like I hit my stride. So maybe I would have just become another person to make up the numbers. And luckily for me, because them guys are gone, that did leave the positions in uh, Bowler and PWG and all other stuff for me to go there and kind of really make Flash Mogul Webster a worldwide name. Yes, yeah, and to the point where, like, when you show up for NXT UK for that uh, that tournament the second year, there is this kind of worldwide independent wrestling fan knowledge of who you are, and there's, like, almost this excitement, like, oh, now we get to see him in this venue, which you're right, probably wouldn't have been there, at least on a global level, Um in that first tournament. But what was the sort of when WWE came in and started doing stuff that WWE had never done before, I guess it started with the cruiserweight classic where they were kind of picking guys up like you and like Zack Sabre jr. And everybody that was in that tournament for the most part though. And it's like, this isn't to come into WWE. This is just to do this tournament. And it's like, Oh, okay. So like I get to be in the WWE environment, but still do independent stuff over here. And then they came and did the UK tournament where it's like, no, we're not, 
signing up people exclusively. You're just going to come in and do this tournament. We're going to name a champion, and then we're going to, you know, brand out from there. And, like, this slow progression into NXT UK, it was a very not traditional WWE thing. What was the vibe like on the British independent scene when you guys realized, like, oh, there's something there's something different going on here? I know. I, it's one of those things. It's like there's a saying that says it, it takes 10 years to become an overnight success. Mm-hmm. And I think that it was kind of like that, that we'd been chipping away for a long time. Progress had become one of the biggest things. ICW had sold out, I think, maybe something like they had maybe eight or 9,000 people at an independent wrestling show um, the year before the tournament. So it really was something real special here. There's a lot of buzz. And a lot of us had even started making the transition of being able to be full-time wrestlers. And that was never the case before. Like I was, I was able to do, um, I was, a, I was a teacher at the time and I was able to kind of wean back on the amount of substitute teaching I was doing and take independent wrestling bookings, which meant before this was before WWE even came, which was absolutely great. Mm-hmm. But I think when WWE came, it was kind of, a lot of us looking around and going like, well, why wouldn't they come here? Because we've made this one of the best scenes in the world. We've made it must-see. We've got people traveling from Canada, people traveling from America, Australia to come and watch these shows. And a lot of the Americans have kind of started coming over here and doing long tours. And they used to a little bit with the with the camps and stuff like that. But now they were coming over and they were doing tours fully just off independent wrestling shows. So it showed how strong the scene was. But it was, yeah, as you said, absolutely crazy because... I think the um, the show they did where again the, the first night of the UK tournament mm-hmm. that was the first time they'd ever taken uh, a group of guys straight off the independents and put them live on yeah. the network. And we've joked before like anybody from that tournament could have gone out and did something really bad <laughs> and like and there were going to be nothing WWE could have done about it. But yeah. they took complete trust and literally put these unknowns and said, okay, we we've seen you at a tryout. We think you're great. We're going to put you live on the network. And that really just speaks volumes how much trust they had in those 16 competitors. Yeah, and really make stars, make WWE-style superstars out of Tyler Bate and Pete Dunne, which, again, I mean, you know, they had developed these reputations on the independents, and WWE had seen them in tryouts and stuff like that. But to not only just say, like, oh, this is just an example of what's over here, but to say from the first, you know, weekend, these two— are getting clearly getting the WWE superstar stamp. That's a big deal. And then to come back the next year and just start stamping everybody and like really making all of you guys shine, um, I think is a huge deal. What was your goal when you were on the British Independence? Was it was the goal to, you know, just be really great here and eventually get over to the States and eventually get to WWE that way? Because it's just really interesting that the way it's turned out is not a way that anybody could have expected because it didn't exist when you guys started. Yeah, yeah, abs- absolutely crazy, really. Um, I don't know. I, I guess when you first start wrestling, your 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 brother on your mum's bed or whatever, when you're ten years old, you always think I'm going to be in the WWE. But then the kind of the older you get, and you kind of see who they're picking up or where they're coming from. I guess it does. That becomes more of a, a fear of a pipe dream. I think when I started. I was a big independent wrestling fan, so I was looking at the likes of Ring of Honor. So maybe in my head, I was like, okay, maybe if I can get to Ring of Honor, if I can get to Japan, then as long as I can, I can maybe I can make a full-time living of being a wrestler. And that became the realistic goal. But every year, you kind of, you do something wrestling, and it outdoes the year before. Mm-hmm. 
And I remember referee Chris Roberts said that every year you should try to outdo the year you had before. And sometimes you think to yourself, well, that can't be done. Like, I can't outdo the year I did before. And somehow it manages to happen. And every single year of my wrestling career, somehow the year that followed it, it's been bigger. So I think, again, as that happened, it slowly became, okay, I want to work for the WWE. Or at one point, it's like, I'm going to get a WWE tryout. And then I got myself a WWE tryout. And then, of course, by the time then I had the tryout, uh, like Mark was signed and Pete was signed and all them. So having a job with WWE was a possibility. Right. And then I guess over time, as your understanding and the scene changes and everything kind of adapts, then that becomes more of a, a possibility. And as you said, I guess at the time it was go leave. I guess the, the goal was to leave Britain mm-hmm. and to and to become a full time independent wrestler. But now, because of all the work of all the all the boys and girls over here, it's WWE have come knocking here, and I, now it's more viable than ever to have a full time living and a very good full time living as a British independent wrestler and not have to leave the country. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's an amazing thing. Uh, so, who did you who did you grow up watching? Because I mean, the British independent scene was not big at all when you're a kid, right? No, not really. So, like, I come from from a generation, really, where the only people who really got out here would have been your Jodie Fleischers, your Doug Williams, your Johnny Storms. They were the ones that were really kind of getting out there. And there wasn't much else in between. I I literally walked into a an independent wrestling uh, training facility, and I'd been I'd been backyarding alongside the wild bull Mike Hitchman for for years. And we went to uh, pro training, and we saw some of the shows that they were putting on. And honest to God, we kind of thought that what we were doing in the backyard was a lot more fun, a lot more entertaining. So we just kind of after a couple of months just went back to the backyard and continued to do that. Um, I at the time and Mark was was great he wasn't he, there was nothing about him at that time that was going to make you think he was going to become as great as he has now because he's absolutely incredible but it wasn't until about three or four years later where mark had met pete and they kind of started revamping the welsh wrestling scene that myself and the world board kind of got fed up with backyard wrestling and they were kind of trying to convince us to come back and by the time we'd come back they'd they changed it and they'd kind of made a scene in wales but as for what i used to watch um on the independent wrestling scene in this country, not a lot really. Again, I said I saw Doug Williams and I saw Jody Fleisch and Johnny Storm and a few other stuff like that. But apart from that, really, a lot of the stuff that used to capture my imagination I used to watch was like old school TNA and uh, Ring of Honor. That was the independent stuff I used to, used to watch. That's interesting. So TNA, what was TNA big in the UK? Oh, t- TNA. I, I think there was a there was a moment where they might have outdrew WWE at Wembley. <laughs> I think that was, I th- I'm sure that was a statistic. There was a year, might have been 2006, might have been 2007, something like that, where it was like the biggest thing. And the reason it was the biggest thing is um, Raw and SmackDown's available on on Sky Sports. Right. And it's available on, on Sky One, I think, maybe in the mornings, or it used to be and stuff like that. Of course, now they moved over to BT Sports. Mm-hmm. But um, TNA was on Freeview. Freeview was in every house in the country. I so see. it didn't matter if you had cable or not, you could watch TNA wrestling. So when it came to... Um, them coming over to the country, and I think they'd been they'd built up a following for about three or four years, where people were were, were gagging to see TNA, and they never came over here. And then they finally said, "Okay, we're coming over for a British tour," and they did Wembley, and it was absolutely rammed because everyone in the country had this this wrestling available to them in their house, 
and everyone had been wanting to see it for three years. So when they finally came over and did the did the tour, it was the biggest thing that could have happened, really. That's amazing. So who did you? Who were your favorites? At, you know, not independents or whatever. I mean, WWE, whatever. Who were your favorites to watch growing up? Um, my my guys, my guys, Eddie Guerrero. I absolutely love Eddie. Eddie and Sean are my are my two big ones. Uh, I get I've said it before. Like I get kind of sad knowing I'll never be able to meet Guerrero because I absolutely loved him. Um, as for like what kind of got me into wrestling, um, I think it's quite funny that the I got into wrestling really through the video games. So SmackDown Two was mine. I really got into that. And I remember meeting Scotty Tuhati and explaining to him that the reason I got into wrestling was because I liked him doing the worm on the video games. So I thought that was absolutely great. Um, so that was a great story when I finally got to meet him and explain that to him. And uh, But yeah, for me growing up watching wrestling, um, I loved the Hardys, Jeff Hardy, Matt Hardy, absolutely loved them. Um, and I loved uh, Eddie Guerrero and Shawn Michaels. Like, and I was definitely getting fully into wrestling when uh, Eddie was getting his push onto SmackDown. And SmackDown was my show. I absolutely loved watching that. That, it, it's funny too that uh, I feel like you know, as a smaller guy, you just you, there's something about watching a Shawn Michaels and an Eddie Guerrero like conquer in the land of the giants, quote unquote, and see that not only are they better than everybody else, but the fans are responding to them more than everybody else. Like on every level, they're succeeding to the height that you could possibly succeed in this world, where you know they're not the prototypes to succeed, right? Well, you said right there, the, the match that made me want to become a professional wrestler was Eddie Guerrero, Brock Lesnar, No Way Out, yeah. 2004. Like, him winning the championship in front of all his friends and family and him being in the crowd. I remember I put in a video cassette to record it, and my mom used to be like, okay, it used to air like 1 a.m. over here. I used to have school the next day. So I'd be there, my mom would let me put the video recorder in, and she'd be like, okay, okay, off you go to bed. And I'd try to get up at like 6 o'clock in the morning then to, to watch it. But I remember that night in particular, after she'd fell asleep about an hour into it, I creeped back downstairs and watched it. I end up wake, I end up screaming so loud when he won the championship that I woke my mother up and was grounded <laughs> for like a week. So, but yeah, that, totally. Like, I just remember him, all the liar, cheat, steal stuff was so entertaining. Yeah. And I kind of look back at it now, and you look at those wrestlers, and my mum never really liked it. We used to put it on on a Thursday. Uh, Raw used to be repeated on the Thursday. So we used to watch that and we used to like, get a takeaway. But my mum used to hate me and my brother watching it. She'd like sit and bear it. But you could always tell the great ones because my mum was very uninterested. But then like Eddie Greer or Shawn Michaels comes on and she was, she'd be quiet for those five or ten minutes and she'd stop complaining. So again, I think the fact that you were saying not just being a bit smarter to it, but also those guys kind of have the ability to transcend to people who don't even like the sport as well. Absolutely. I mean, those are the moments that I remember too, the moments that my dad was actually interested because my dad didn't like wrestling, but like those moments, like when I, I'll never forget watching Hunter and Stephanie get married while Stephanie was unconscious. And my dad would be like, instead of asking to change the channel, he just sat down and he was like, they're not gonna, oh my God. And he's like reacting <laughs> to it and doing all this. And I'm like, that's how you know this works. It's amazing with Eddie Guerrero too, what you said about the lie, cheat and steal stuff being so entertaining because Eddie and Sean's the same way. Eddie and Sean had this ability to not just like have a great match or be entertaining. Like those are two of the rare people who can do both at the same time. Like I think about uh, Eddie and, and Kurt and their match at WrestleMania 20 when the whole match, like they're having, it's a great match just as matches go. And the whole match, Eddie is like 
you know, playing with his boot and playing with his boot and playing with his boot. And that reveal at the end when the boot comes off from the ankle lock and now he's doing character work in the middle of this, like, good wrestling match. I'm like, this, this is everything. This is what it's all about. Yeah, again, it, it really takes someone special to be able to kind of walk that fine line of legit serious wrestler, but comedy wrestler at the same time. Yeah. And be able to flip from one side to the other, but always look like a legit contender. I was speaking to Travis Banks the other day, and uh, Travis Banks is one of the one of the funniest guys outside the ring. He really is. But all we see with him inside the ring or inside, like on TV, is this intense, tough guy. So he's again is trying to figure out a way of how he can incorporate that comedy side that he has. And the one we're talking about at the moment is Kurt Angle and how Kurt could be yes. the biggest fool of the party backstage and everyone laughing at him. But the moment he goes in the ring, he was an Olympic gold medalist. So yeah, it's again that ability is absolutely incredible to do that yeah to go from wearing like the tiny little ridiculous cowboy hat and singing jimmy crack corn and i don't care to getting in the ring and being like do you understand i could tear apart anybody anybody and you're like yeah i believe both i believe both sides it's the it's the run he did uh for a few months after he had his head shaved and he would come up with a wig on and the rest and the <laughs> yeah. and the wrestling guard and he is there dismantling people with a wig on his head <laughs> yeah. and it's the most serious wrestler but he, like, he just plays it straight and yeah. you're just laughing the entire time because this man still believes that like everyone is bought into the fact that he has a head full of hair it's absolutely incredible <laughs> nobody can tell it's a wig <laughs> <laughs> um yeah yeah stuff like that. It's the same way with me. It was always like the entertainment part of it. What was it like for you when NXT UK starts to, you know, really start going and you're working with Shawn Michaels now, like, and, and, and Shawn Michaels is coming up to you and he's telling you what you, what he thinks of your matches and you can do this and you actually get to have some experience inside that brain. Uh, it's, it's, I got you saying, I've got goosebumps. You say it. I'm ridiculous. The, the, the moment I met him, was quite surreal. Like I walked into the Royal Albert Hall, which is in itself is ridiculous. It's a it's a venue I would have grown up watching, like the Royal Variety performances with my grandparents. Some of the greats have performed in that hall, and we were getting to to do the second tournament there. I walked into the building and I see uh, Shawn Michaels down by the ringside. And I'm like, okay, okay, go up and uh, go and shake his hand. I do, you know, I met Triple H at this point. Um, I'd met other people along the way, and uh, again, still big big deals. But when it came to Shawn, he was my guy. So I was like, I'm going to meet Shawn Michaels. And it kept a couple of moments where I'm going to walk down and then he starts talking to somebody and I kind of, like, you know, back off a little bit and I go, okay, I'll give him a few seconds. And eventually he walks off somewhere else and I'm like, I'll, I'll, find, I'll find him at some point. I'll get the courage and I'll go find him. So I start talking to Jordan Devlin and we're going through some stuff. And there's a tap on the shoulder and I turn and Shawn Michaels is there. So he's approached me and he introduces himself <laughs> like he needs to introduce himself, but he introduces himself as Shawn Michaels and then asks me if I'm going to do um, my three dives tonight in my match. And I'm like, three dives? He's like, you know, the one you do through through the bottom, through the middle and over the top. And I'm like, oh, no, no, I, I why, do you think I should? He goes, I think it looks great. I think you definitely should. Yeah, it'll, it'll add a lot to it. I just want to know if you're doing it. So he was like, so make sure nobody else does it. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, I think I will. Appreciate it. And, I, and then he walks off. And I think myself, it was the, it was the, the thought then of not only has he come over to introduce himself, but he knows who I am. And he's being Shawn Michaels, being the guy that studies everything. He's watched my stuff as well, which absolutely blew me away yeah but as it comes to like being able to work with him it always comes down to you walk backstage and of course we've got like william regal here we've got robbie brookside we've got johnny saint and every like we get so much knowledge johnny moss james mason so much knowledge matt bloom everyone giving us all this all this feedback and it's great and you you like kind of you you impress them and it and it really means a lot but the one guy that you kind of like 
there's a difference between coming backstage and getting a thumbs up from Shawn Michaels or coming backstage and having Shawn pull you aside and tell you what he loved or talk, telling you that you smashed this or you did that. There's one match in particular that was um, myself and Mark Andrews versus the Grizzly and Veterans mm -hmm. from uh, Brentwood. It was the two or three tapings after we dropped the tag team championships. And there was a moment in the match where we needed a double down. And, and Sean has said to us before, and he's like, I need this, I need this, this, this four-way double down to happen. And the crowd need to be at fever pitch. They need to be the highest they possibly can because Gallus and Imperium were going to come down then, start a fight between it all, and the match was going to get thrown out. So the fans need to feel like they were being robbed, but also that energy need to be there so we could carry on to this big brawl that was going to happen. And I remember us doing this match and we hit the final thing on this double down and the crowd had been good all night, but we hit it and there was a standing ovation off this crowd and they went absolutely berserk. And then when we came backstage, he just like was there for about 15, 20 minutes with us, just giving us like all this advice and kind of singing our praises. And to me, that's like the biggest compliment I could ever have. Not only one of the best, in my opinion, one of the best of all time, but one of my favorites kind of enjoying the work that I'm creating. Yeah. I mean, it must make it so easy to ignore anything negative after that. Like when you yeah. can say, do you know who likes what I do? I don't care what you think. Like, do you know who just complimented me? Like, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's definitely true. It's like, again, you have some bad, everyone has bad criticism online or whatever, but it's it's hard to kind of pay attention to those people telling you you're not that good at what you do when like the likes of Shawn Michaels are telling you that he definitely thinks that you are good at what you do. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Do you, uh, do you have a favorite moment from nxt uk or from one of the takeovers or i i feel like nxt uk has kind of really really followed in that tradition of nxt here in the states where like takeovers were just like and still to this day it's just every show is gonna up it and gonna up it to the point where you go okay that's the peak it's not gonna get better and then the next takeover comes on and you're like oh my god it's better and then here comes nxt uk and I feel like you guys are not only on that level where like you come right out of the gate, like this has to smoke. I mean, the first tournament, the 2017 tournament, I was like, oh my God, what is this? And then in 2018, when it's like, here's the brand, it was like, yeah, this, you can't possibly ignore it. And then to watch you guys set that standard and then just build and build and build and just not have moments where you're going, oh, okay, it's not as good as it used to be, but I'm sure it'll get better. It just keeps going up and up do, do you do you marvel at it do you credit it to the to the team just having a like-minded philosophy on this i mean i mean how do you how do you guys pull that off i think it comes down to that mentality of why the british scene became so good in the first place i think it's a collection of people who want to succeed that want everyone to get better everyone's there working together everyone will like pull each other to the side after matches and give each other feedback Everyone will approach everyone and go, okay, what's this? What have I done wrong? What can I change? Everyone really just wants to get better. And then when you see a match that absolutely smashes it, like you see a Walter versus Tyler, and then you go to yourself, okay, I want to be at that level in a year's time, or I want to be at least in that same talking bracket that people are talking about. And then, of course, by the time you get around to that, then Tyler has become something completely different, and he's untouchable once again. But <laughs> yeah, I think it's a mixture of we've got absolutely great talent on here, but also a real hunger to prove ourselves. The one that really stands out to me is we did take over Blackpool and there was a little bit of a stir. It was great. And then we had TakeOver Cardiff. And on TakeOver Cardiff, there was a lot of wrestling that weekend. Mm -hmm. There was there was an AEW show. There was a um, there was right. a New Japan show. 
and we were kind of really forgotten about. We were the we were the show that everyone was like, oh, that that's on as well. And out of that, then everyone came kind of came out of it and said, I think that might have been the best show of the weekend. And like we had said, Tyler, we had Tyler versus Walter. We had the triple threat tag team match in which we won the tag team championships. Um, we had a great one with uh, Tony and Kaylee Ray. There's just like there's a great um, there was a great last man standing match. There's like again so much on that card, but a lot of people went into it not expecting a lot. And I think that we kind of thrive in that environment. We thrive where people say to us, like, okay, this will be good, but it won't be as good as what we'll see in America or New Japan or AEW. And then we go out there and have these stellar shows and kind of look across the pond and say, okay, then follow that. Right. And I think it's been kind of something that's been bred into us since this British wrestling scene's kind of had its resurgence. We kind of do what we do over here and then we look over to the independent wrestling scene in America and we say, okay, your turn. See if you can beat that. Yeah, I mean, I remember that weekend and going like, oh, like after that show going, wow, that was really good. And then like, you know, you sit with it. It's one of those shows that you would sit with as a fan and go, was that as good as I thought it was? And as you process it, like you, it keeps getting better in your head. Like you realize like, no, that was, that was excellent. And then you watch the other shows and you're like, oh, that was good. And AW, that was good. And then the weekend comes to an end and you're like. I think Takeover Cardiff was the best show of the weekend. Like that, like because you have you just don't, you're not even putting it into that category, right? You're not even giving it a chance to be that going in. You're just like, oh, this will be a fun show. This will be like the appetizer, and you leave going, the appetizer was better and more satisfying than the entree and dessert. I don't, I, I don't believe yeah. it. You know what yeah, I mean? I, again, I think uh, that kind of has speaks volumes about what we actually do here at NXT UK because I think. We have we're the wrestling show that people watch and they enjoy, but we we don't have hardened fans. There's like again, there are definitely people out there that will sing from the AEW hymn book till the cows come home. Mm -hmm. And the same for NXT, they mm -hmm. re they refuse to see anything bad. And again, that can mean that when they watch a show, no matter how good or bad the show is, they think it's incredible. Mm -hmm. Whereas when people come into our shows, a lot of the time they're coming in going, okay, this should be good, but they're not completely utterly sold on it and brainwashed by it right and then in turn that means that when our show is being touted as the best of the weekend then it really must have some merit yeah 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 because people go in going like oh yeah i heard this is pretty good so prove it <laughs> you're like okay well we will again we will um yeah what was it uh for you coming in you were one of the i would say most character heavy personalities you know especially when you first started in nxt uk coming in as the mod father like, was there any sort of, like, looking around and going, like, oh, there's not that many characters on this show. I thought it was always really good because I remember after the first time I saw you, I was like, yep, I know exactly who that is. And even if I only had kind of a sort of knowledge of, of what you had done on the independence, like, any time I saw you, it, it struck a reminder because I'd be like, I know what that character is. You know what I mean? Even if I don't know yeah. everything about the athlete, I know the character because instantly when you see the character, it's like, that's different. That's something cool. That's something new. Um, was it just something that you wanted to do or or was it something that you thought, mm, maybe I should tone down, maybe I should amp it up? What was the thinking behind it? Um, I was like told very early on that like the best wrestlers, really, you should be able to kind of define them within a sentence or two. So, like, again, you think Pete Dunne, the first thing you think is bruiserweight, and that right. confirms everything you know about him. He's a gritty cruiserweight. So, again, when you think of me, I like to think everyone thinks, like, mod or mod father, and it kind of, you know, chimes in. But, yeah, when it comes to when I stepped into WWE, 
I guess it's, again, people don't realize how hard TV wrestling is. And I'll be one that I definitely came in thinking I knew all the answers. And once I got here, I realized, oh, the real hard work really starts now. Mm -hmm. And I guess it's kind of trying to find that middle ground of knowing where the cameras are, knowing kind of like the timings, knowing how long I have, knowing not to go over, making sure that everything's crisp and clean. And then after you've got all that, you're like, okay, and now I've got to sprinkle in all this character work as well throughout it. And sometimes that can be quite hard. Like some people might turn on and say that like, since I've started like doing more stuff with NXT UK, um, maybe my more, some of my character stuff has stopped as much. And I, again, I, they probably would be right when it comes to that. But they've also got to kind of realize, I do think that some of the matches like me and Mark Andrews have been doing as a tag team have been some of the best matches I've ever had in my career. Right. So it's like, again, I'm finding my feet when it comes to a tag team wrestler because again, I wasn't a tag team wrestler when I came here. I'd had some runs with like Wild Bull and stuff like that doing bits and pieces. But me and Mark weren't an established, well put together team when we stepped into WWE. We were something that we were put together for a tag team tournament and then kind of hit our stride with and have been learning and picking up as we've gone along. So yeah, maybe the character stuff, I didn't really think about kind of toning it down, but it has toned down a little bit. And that's only happened really because I put so much more emphasis on the in-ring product. And hopefully, I guess the end result should be that once I'm 100% on top of that in-ring product and know what me and Mark do inside and out, I can kind of start sprinkling some of that character work back in there again. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I also think that it did the trick, right? Because when you talk about what happened in 2018, I'm watching that show going, okay, as a casual American wrestling fan, I know the guys from 2017. I certainly know Bait and Don, and I know Mustache Mountain, and I know the guys that have been exposed on takeovers and stuff like that. But there's a whole bunch of new guys now that we didn't see last year, and I don't know all these guys. Like, how are how are they going to stick out? But being so character-heavy in the beginning is like, okay, well, now I instantly click in with this character. I know he's part of the show. I know I'm, I'm going to be expecting, okay, well, what's... Uh, even if I don't even know who you are, what's the mod guy going to be doing? And when you get there, okay, what's the mod father going to be doing? Okay, what's Flash Morgan Webster going to be doing? And by the time you get there, now it's it is kind of time to tone down the character a little bit and be like, oh, by the way, now that you know me, I happen to be an excellent wrestler. And you're like, oh, great, this is you can, this is perfect. Yeah, I I can't I can't agree anymore really. And again, now you're saying it, I look back at those early kind of. Uh, vignettes they were putting together, not just for me, but for NXT UK. And I guess because I do have such a heavy British look mm -hmm. that I was scattered on everything. I remember them kind of yep. announcing they were going to be doing NXT UK as a TV show and they were going to be, and it was announced on the pay-per-view. And I remember the last scene you saw of the whole advert was me doing up my, was me tucking in my handkerchief mm -hmm. and then pulling my glasses down and looking at the screen. And that was like held for a good like second or two. So I was the last thing people saw when they thought about that brand. So again, I didn't really think about it that way. But now you've said it, I guess, because I was so character heavy and driven, I was the one person that kind of stood out in that tournament when they were trying to promote a British product. Yeah. Do you, uh, w where do you find yourself goals wise now? Right. I feel like goals tend to change when you do what you do for enough years that you're really, really good at it. But you also realize it's kind of tough to make goals when the world is evolving at all times. You know what I mean? When you realize, like, I'm at the place where I never thought I would be. I'm at the place where I wanted to be as a kid. But the reason that I'm here is because 
everything changed in ways that nobody could have ever been silly enough. If you had said, you know, in 2015, here's how it's going to go down. You'd be like, that's ridiculous. That's not that, that's not going to happen. And 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 something like that happens. Do you find yourself with long term goals now, or or are you just of the mindset? Well, how about I just be better this year than last year, and it will guide me to where we need to be. Yeah, goals. I've always really been a goal driven person. I think my entire friendship group in wrestling always have been. And again, I think that comes from the mindset, as Chris Roberts said to us like try to make this year better than last year. Um, yeah, I remember a couple of years ago, maybe like 2013, I think my goal was, okay, have a European booking. Mm-hmm. And then 2014, my goal was, okay, work for one of the four big top independent promotions in Britain. Mm-hmm. And then 2015 was getting an American uh, debut or whatever. And then again, they keep building, they keep building, they keep building. And then, okay, 2017, I want a W tryout. I want Peter G and I got that. And then 2018, I worked for Dury. And it's like, okay, what 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 can 2019 bring? And then you're like, okay, 2019, by uh, August, I've won my first championship in Dury. And you think, right, okay, that sealed it. Okay, next year then I wanna do I wanna do raw and I wanna do main I wanna do main NXT in America. And then before you know it, uh, October rolls around and me and Mark are on raw. <laughs> so then it's like, whoa, okay, so that was a goal for next year and it's already been done. Right. And I go, okay. Okay, um, we want maybe I mean Mark start thinking like okay, we'd love another another takeover maybe next year. Uh, maybe we could do NXT and then January rolls around and in the course of a week we do the ladder match takeover Blackpool two and then we go and do the Dusty Classic and yeah. it's like okay now I'm in January and I seem to have ticked off all my goals for <laughs> 2020. So it's like I don't know. Um, I guess you just got you can't say to yourself I want to. Again, everyone could turn and say, okay, I want to do Rumble. I want to do Mania. And I guess you can turn and say to yourself, are those goals too big? But then Raw might have been a goal that I thought was too big last year, and that seemed to have happened. Right. Uh, I guess the biggest goal for, for me now really would be me and Mark would love another run with those tag team championships. I felt like we were the team that was never really supposed to win them. We, again, were transitional champions. Um, but now I feel like we've really found our feet as a team uh, we went to Dusty Classic, and again, some people saying that it was a lot of people's favorite match of the entire tournament. So again, we're showing that we can hang with some of the better teams. So we'd love another run with those NXT UK Tag Team Championships. And I guess we just want to continue to show that NXT UK is the best brand uh, that WWE has, really. And also, we want to kind of make it that it's not, okay, you do NXT UK, and then you go off to NXT in America. Yeah. We want it to be that okay, you get to NXT UK and you can you can stay here for 10, 15 years and have a career here and do everything you need to. You don't need to go to America. I think that's our next goal. Our next goal is to make this brand as big and as bright as possible. Is it Does it surprise you that you are now coming at me with this goal of winning a second tag team championship when, you know, not that long ago you'd go, well, I'm not a tag team wrestler. I don't know anything about this. Yeah, and I, I guess as well, like when I'm talking to you now about like winning uh, a tag team, uh, a second championship in Dury, me and Mark were sat around maybe beginning of 2000 and, yeah, 2019, and we were talking about how Tegan Knox was probably going to end up being the first Welsh competitor to ever hold gold in Dury because she was on the mainstay. And then when August rolls around, me and Mark become the first ever Welsh men to hold gold in Dury, which is absolutely crazy. Now I stand here 
we'll sit here telling you that I'm looking at maybe potentially trying to capture our second lot. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's, I guess you kind of just have to roll with it sometimes and you just got to kind of look at where you have been and where you want to go and you learn from everything. And as I said, you hope that next year, that your hard work that you put in this year, that next year can be uh, bigger and better. So yeah, I guess I guess it is weird. I'm, I'm kind of saying that to you considering I wasn't a tag team uh, specialist when this all started. Um, but wrestling in itself surprises me every year. Do you have a moment where you go back, when, you win, when you're a tag team champion and you're holding the title and you're looking down and it like, it feels like a WWE title. There's a WWE logo on it. You know, it's 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 a lot different from winning a title on the independence. This is the 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 dream that you had as a kid. Do you have a moment where you look down at it and you're like, you go back to that whatever, 10, 11 year old and go, oh my god, like this is this is it. Like there's there's two, I guess. Like one would have been like I I if anyone's seen the, the finish of the match, it's uh, Marcus shooting star press onto Gibson, who's pinning me. He flips the pin over and the, the whole crowd count along while I'm resting on top. So it's kind of had this moment afterwards that Mark's celebrating and I kind of come to, and as I come to, the belt's already been put in my lap. So there's a moment where I generally have come out of being on the floor with my eyes closed. And one of the first things I see in front of me is the tag team championships. And from there, then we end up in the crowd surrounded by our entire country uh, in Cardiff, absolutely everyone sing along to Mark's theme music. <laughs> so yeah, I guess that that would be it. Really, is that moment there? But the, I know that me and Mark spoke about it and we said like, we wondered if after we if we won them if we'd if we would cry in the ring and we didn't. And I know that when we got backstage, um, we got to like Adrian Street was there and he got to meet us straight away, which was absolutely crazy. He got a picture of us, which is a complete full circle moment for me, uh, being from the same town as him. Um, but. Mark, I had a conversation with Mark a couple of seconds after uh, we had the picture with Triple H and then Mark got really kind of like said he thought about his dad being at home watching it and he got really quite upset and I, I didn't, I, I felt quite calm and then I, I was uh, I was up, we we wanted to go out and party so bad that night that we couldn't, we had to be up for, uh, we had an interview at 6.30am on the radio <laughs> the next day so we had to be up at like 5am so we couldn't go out um, we, I got back from our interview so I'm super tired and uh, I sat in the hotel room and I hadn't seen the match and I watched the match and I watched it all. And the moment they counted three, um, I just in the hotel room just broke down crying and I couldn't control it. Don't, don't again, hasn't happened since, but again, I guess it would have been me having to keep myself composed for that entire time. And even after we won the belts and we were backstage and we were still in a professional environment and then being so tired, went home, probably went to sleep. I guess it probably just simmered and, and built up. And then the moment I watched it back, it just kind of, that's when it really happened. I kind of watched that and I kind of looked across the hotel room and saw the belt on the side and yeah, I had a, had a, had a bit of a cry and yeah, absolutely incredible. It's amazing. It's also amazing that like being a part of NXT UK is also learning that WWE superstar lifestyle where it's like, yeah, you're going to win the title and tomorrow morning you're going to wake up at 630 in the morning and you're going to be doing media and you're, and this is part of the deal. And it's like, yeah, this is, this is, this is the deal. Yeah, um, one one of the coolest things ever was we got um, we got approached by Cardiff City uh, State uh, Football Club, which is the biggest club in Wales. Um, well, Sw if you speak to Swansea fans, they'll say Swansea is the biggest club in Wales. But yeah, um, one of the biggest clubs in Wales, and we got invited to come to them, and we got to go out half time, and they gave us 
uh, our own jerseys with our names printed on the back and stuff like that. We're sitting tag team champions and yeah, that sort of stuff always kind of crazy. I guess it. I hope that you'll never get to this point, but I guess that they will come to a point in people's careers when they're they're kind of tired and they're beat up and they don't really want to be doing this media. But for me and Mark, we absolutely love it. We love sitting down and chatting and and yeah, it really is one of the one of the coolest parts of the job. You meet so many cool people this way, and it really is a blast. We've done some of the coolest things we've ever done while being out and doing media. So yeah, it is part of the. It was tired in that moment that we had to go on the radio the next day, but we were also going on to Welsh radio and kind of saying to everyone hey we're the first champions from wales in the history of this company and that was pretty cool well, it's just amazing the whole story is amazing and everything with the brand it's just really really cool uh you can hear more uh from flash morgan webster of course uh he does enjoy having a chat he's got his own podcast called wrestling friends which you guys can uh look up wherever you get podcasts uh not too long ago you had edge on you've had all kinds of really great guests uh on the show and it's just I mean, it's wrestlers talking wrestling. It's as good as it gets for wrestling fans, right? Yeah, um, abs- absolutely. Um, I started it when I hurt my shoulder. Uh, something to do, and it's become something that I absolutely love doing. I uh, said to somebody recently, I equate it to everyone's been at a house party. Everyone's been there at like 2 o'clock in the morning when somebody, well, everyone's fallen asleep, and you've somehow ended up uh, in the kitchen, sat on the floor talking to somebody you kind of know, and you kind of then start having a worldly conversation, trying to put the world to rights at three o'clock in the morning. And you leave that house party kind of feeling that you've got to know that person for a brief moment a little bit better than you did. And that's how I equate my conversation. So as I like to call them gatherings with my uh, wrestling friends, I like to just kind of sit, chat, and hopefully by the end of it, you know a little bit more about them and uh, a little bit more about me. I love it. Well, uh, thanks for coming on the show and letting us know a little bit more about you. And we'll have to do it again soon, man. Yeah, appreciate it, man. Really did. I really enjoyed this. Cool. Thanks for listening. Follow at NotSam on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Rate, review, and subscribe. This has been Not Sam Wrestling. Nobody builds 5G. Like Verizon builds 5G. Because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from Rootmetrics second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire.
No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.